I think the Iranians view the Shia military groups as a much more tactical solution versus a strategic one. I will would argue that the Iranians have less command and control over the Houthis than probably any of their other proxy groups. If you look at even the weapons inventories that the, the Iraqi militants have and the Shia militants have in Syria, they're not close to, say, what Hezbollah has. Hey, welcome back to the Modern War Institute podcast. I'm John Nemble, editorial director at MWI. And on this episode, I wanted to discuss something that for months now has been a growing feature of the security landscape of the Middle East, Iran's network of proxy groups. The Houthi movement has been launching attacks against international shipping in the Red Sea. Observers have watched for signs of Hezbollah involvement in the ongoing Israel-Hamas conflict. And militant groups in Syria and Iraq have been targeting US forces. All of these groups have relationships with Iran. To explore those relationships, their nuances and their differences, and US policy regarding this constellation of Iranian proxies, I'm joined today by Jonathan Panikoff. He spent years in key positions in the US intelligence community, including serving as the Deputy National Intelligence Officer for the Near East at the National Intelligence Council, and he is now the director of the Skullcroft Middle East Security Initiative at the Atlantic Council. His experience and deep knowledge of the Middle East make him the perfect guest for an important discussion on Iran's use of proxies. Before we get to that discussion, a couple notes. First, if you're not yet subscribed to the MWA podcast, you can find it on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss an episode. And second, as always, what you hear in this episode are the views of the participants and don't represent those of West Point, the Army, or any other agency of the U.S. government. All right, here's my conversation with Jonathan Panikoff. Jonathan, thank you so much for joining me on this episode of the MWI podcast. Thanks for having me. Thrilled to be here. So, you know, I guess to sort of initially scope out the discussion a little bit, I should let listeners know that when I first reached out to you and asked you to come on the podcast, they'll have heard quite a bit about your bio in the intro uh, to this episode. So they'll know that you're uniquely well-suited to talk about some things in the Middle East. And I wanted to ask you about the Houthi movement because since about mid-October, we saw an uh, you know an upsurge or a surge of attacks that you know the Houthis are initially at least claimed were aimed principally at uh, Israeli interests in the region, mainly in the Red Sea. It has really sort of embroiled the entire shipping industry uh, in this pretty important area. So I wanted to talk to you a little bit about the Houthis and then contextualize that alongside what's happening in Gaza right now uh, since the October seventh Hamas attacks against Israel and within broader kind of geopolitical and security dynamics in uh, in the Middle East. Since I first invited you on, we saw the attack in Jordan by an Iranian-backed group that killed three U.S. service members, wounded, I think, as many as almost three dozen more uh, in Jordan near the border with Syria. That's obviously something we're going to talk about. So I think the conversation might turn into more of a discussion about Iranian-backed groups and their proxies and, and how that factors into some pretty complex uh, patterns within the region. But because I had first asked you to come on to talk about the Houthis, let's start there. Sure. You know, most people will have kind of a, at least a general understanding of, of who this group is. Um, but if, you know, to sort of establish a baseline, I wonder if you can kind of talk about this group's origins, how it emerged, most people's familiarity or awareness about the group stemmed from the, the, the civil war that was, was taking place in Yemen, you know, began over a decade ago. Uh, can you kind of talk about who the Houthis are, what their interests in Yemen and, and the region are? 
Yeah, sure. So look, thanks again for having me on. Let me do this relatively briefly. So the Houthis are really what amounts to a, a Shia um, militant organization. There's a political wing to the organization. They first emerged um, in the mid-90s, and they're made up of um, a sect of Zaidi Shias and come from, like a lot of folks in the region, it's tribal. So they're coming from the Houthi tribe, which has been based in what is now present-day Yemen for for a number of years. Um, They emerge really as an opposition movement. So we really started to see them take some efforts to be uh, a political movement in the late 90s, early aughts against then Yemeni President Saleh. And we saw that on the margins of the Arab Spring, when you had the Yemeni revolution in 2011, they started to play a broader and broader role. You then saw, obviously, um, Saudi military intervention, Emirati and Saudi military intervention in the late um, 2010s. So you saw a war that started to emerge And there was really a concern that the Houthis were, as the Trump administration designated them at the end of the Trump term, a a terrorist organization. And so there was this effort by some of the Gulf states that have really tried to um, push back on more Islamist and extremist elements in the region as a whole to really marginalize the Houthis. It didn't work. Um, In fact, it had the opposite effect in reality. Um, The Houthis have not only survived and thrived um, in Yemen as an opposition group, as a political movement, but they've become really the dominant faction and the dominant force in Yemen now for uh, a number of years. Um, They control large swaths of the country, including the capital of Sanaa, you're talking about a group that fundamentally wants to have power and wants to have control and wants to be part of a government. And what's happened in the UAE in the kind of post-war period is the situation that the Saudis became very clear to them, we're not going to be able to win this fight. Um, Saudi military capabilities and the execution of those capabilities was not nearly as strong as I think the Saudis expected that they were going to be able to be. Um, The Emiratis did have some success, but you ultimately had um, what has been a humanitarian catastrophe with no end in sight. And so you've had about 350,000 people that have died from some combination of uh, lack of food, lack of water. You've had probably between 20 and 30, depending 30,000 people, depending on how you're counting, who have passed away from direct military strikes. And so now we've been in this kind of stalemate for a while. And so with U.S. support, Tim Linderking, the special representative and others, you have an effort being made um, to try to get to a negotiated resolution. And I think the view was, let's say before October 7th, there was actually good progress made. You had seen a ceasefire now for uh, almost a couple of years. Um, You saw a situation in which it was holding. Um, There wasn't a final resolution, but we were on our way. October 7th, 
started to change that. The Houthis didn't make an immediate move, but what you've now seen, obviously, since especially mid-November, is the Houthis, as you referenced, John, conduct multiple, multiple attacks in the Red Sea in shipping lanes. You now have shipping through that area down 15% at minimum. There are some references that it actually may be higher than that. You've seen ships diverted down to the Cape of of, uh, Good Hope in Southern Africa, which um, is not only a much longer trip to reach Europe, but it's a much more dangerous trip in a lot of ways, just from the, the the winds, the way the um, the shipping challenges are. And so it takes a much longer time. It's much more expensive is the bottom line. So at what point does um, Iran sort of enter the picture as, as a dominant feature in terms of how we conceptualize Houthis, the Houthi movement, and their sort of operational decision-making? Because you know, they, they started, as you said, as an opposition movement, which means their interests are largely confined largely to within the boundaries of Yemen. Firing rockets at foreign ships transiting the Red Sea doesn't doesn't fit into that as if those are your, where your strategic objectives lie. So how does Iran sort of enter the equation? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think the Houthis are opportunistic above everything else. And I think what the Houthis saw to go backward, work backwards a little bit is opportunity. I think the Houthis saw that within the Arab world, there wasn't a major force that was actually playing enough of an opposition role among around whom folks would rally. So Hamas, obviously, in the October 7th attack, but some of the traditional Iranian proxies, whether Shia militants in Iraq, Shia militants in Syria, who have taken some actions, um, but not been um, consistent, I wouldn't say. Um, Hezbollah, which has had a back and forth volley that has certainly been at a raised temperature, but hasn't escalated to a full scale war. Another one. I think the Houthis saw this as an opportunity, I think, to gain respect throughout the Arab world with very little to lose. So they have no access to the actual energy resources in Yemen, including in Mara province, um, that are going to be critical if they're going to be able to sustain a a government and have leadership and have access to that capital that is going to be derived from energy sources. They've had no access or acceptance by the international community. They also are still, as I mentioned earlier, trying to figure out and finalize negotiations with the Saudis to get to a peaceful resolution. And this almost certainly, I think, in their minds, gives them additional leverage that they wouldn't have had before now. And so it comes to them at very low risk. The Iranians have a variety of partners and proxies throughout the region. The Houthis are one of them. But I will would argue that the Iranians have less command and control over the Houthis than probably any of their other proxy groups in the entire region. Because of the Houthis' history, they're going to accept Iranian support, they're going to appreciate it, but they're not always going to listen. We know this. there's been instances in which the Iranians wanted the Houthis to do something or not to do something. And the Houthis decided, no, it wasn't in their interest and they were going to make their own calculations. And they've been able to do that in a meaningful way. 
And so I think what you're seeing now is a case of a symbiotic relationship. They've come closer together, Tehran, IRGC, and the Houthis, to an extent that really what's happened is the Iranians are providing targeting information, the Iranians are providing most of the sophisticated missiles, if not all of the more sophisticated weaponry, and the Houthis are using it. The flip side that I think is important to mention in this, when it comes to Iran, is that Iran, just as it has less command and control over the Houthis than probably any other proxy group, the Houthis are also probably less important to Iran than any other proxy group. And so I think for Tehran and and the IRGC in particular, this is also providing an opportunity to try to test, to see how far can we push the international um, system, regional allies, the U.S., others. They've seen the reaction and clearly made a decision that it hasn't been so sufficient or so degrading that they couldn't continue on that pathway. So if Iran is 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 pulling the levers, or if not pulling the levers, at least pointing the Houthis toward the levers uh, to pull them, you know, is is does that does that serve Iran's strategic purposes? And if so, to what end? Yeah, so I think there's two things. One is I think it helps the Iranians um, be able to try and um, determine what the actual limits of how far they can push militarily in the region and what they can get away with before allies start to push back in a way that is not acceptable to Iran. So we've seen time and again, Iran is really willing to be quite aggressive and quite forward-leaning in how it uses its Arab proxies and partners. But it's been incredibly reticent, historically, to allow any uh, threat to the Iranian homeland or any threat to its own forces, but for those that are actually deployed out with some of the Arab militias and Arab proxies. I think that this helps Iran calculate and try to determine the short-term strategic opportunities. I think over the long-term, what it does is I think that they see the Houthis as another opportunity to try and increase their influence in the region. In other words, countries that aren't happy with how Iran is acting, okay, that's fine. But they're still going to have to negotiate and deal then with the Iranians through their proxies. And that means that those countries in the region, whether it's Saudi Arabia, whether it's the UAE, whether it's others, especially in the Gulf, are going to be constantly under threat. And this threat is going to be looming over them. And the Arab countries, I think, recognize this. What you'll hear folks from Saudi Arabia say quite recently is, while they, under the Trump administration especially, have been pushing the maximum pressure campaign, the reason they made the rapprochement with the Iranians that the Chinese helped to finalize in March of last year is because they needed to calm tensions that they didn't buy that U.S. security guarantees were going to be available. I think there's a strong discussion to be had for another time about whether that's merely an excuse or whether that's true. There's truth is somewhere in between. But what is true is that there's not enough political risk insurance in the world to cover for consistent missile and rocket barrages coming from the Houthis, thanks to Iranian support and provision and targeting, 
into Saudi Arabia if the relationship goes bad, that it'll allow Saudi Arabia to keep focus on turning its economy, on diversifying away from hydrocarbons in the way that it's been so insistent that it has to do. The Saudis will tell you 10% of their GDP in the future has to come from tourism, has to come from revenue. There's, you're not going to be able to do that with significant missile launches and, and barrages. And so for the Iranians, it's part of a long-term strategy to keep their regional influence and the pressure on Arab, especially Gulf Arab states um, in, the, in the coming months and years, frankly. So let's, um, I guess, shift our attention northward. Uh, and and Tower 22, as, as you mentioned uh, earlier in the conversation, was this facility that housed U.S. military personnel. A drone attack uh, was uh, or struck this facility, killed three U.S. service members, uh, wounded 30-some more. This was believed to be an Iranian-backed group uh, that conducted the attack. Now, I think from publicly available information, there's been something like 150 attacks on U.S. personnel, U.S. infrastructure in the region uh, since October 7th. This is the first one that has been, you know, inarguably successful from the from the point of view of of the attackers. What do we know about that? And is this is this an area where? Iran does exert much more leverage over its sort of constellation of proxies. So Tower 22, for those that don't know, and I'm sure most of you listeners do, but sits right on the border with Syria and literally only a few kilometers from the Iraqi border. Um, it's been used as really the prominent monitoring, place of monitoring um, for the Rukban refugee camp which is on the Syrian side of the border and has been um, one of the massive refugee camps that's emerged over the last decade stemming from uh, Assad's the, the war. And it's still functional, still has uh, tens if not hundreds of thousands of people remaining at it. What's different here, I think, more than anything, more than any of the other previous attacks is whether the fact that it's right on the border is not relevant to the fact that it, it you're talking about an attack that struck in Jordanian sovereign territory. And so Jordan, unlike Iraq, Jordan, unlike Syria, doesn't have Shia militant bases, doesn't have Shia militant groups backed by the Iranians. Um, so this becomes a violation of Jordanian sovereignty as well. And Jordan being such a close U.S. ally, I think that's part of something that's being slight. I, th I think that's partly being um, underestimated in terms of the impact, in terms of how I think DOD is probably going to be thinking about this. Um, there is been for a number of years now constant threats in the Hashemite kingdom, um, internal threats and external threats, fears that there would be spillover of the war um, from Iraq, the war from Syria, fears now after October 7th that the large Palestinian population in Jordan is going to be agitated um, and could cause problems. This only heightens those fears. And so there's actually a need to reassure there are Jordanians as well. More strategically, there is a, a significant challenge because I think the Biden administration 
and we're going to see this play out real time in, in the coming days and weeks, really has to calculate how it goes after uh, the Shia militants or the Iranians or both in response. And I think that the Shia militant groups um, tend to be much, much more responsive to Tehran than the Houthis are. Um, it's not just that you have a the Iranians providing them weapons and training. I mean, the command and control there is much, much tighter. It's hard for me to imagine that but for this being an accident, uh, which I struggle to imagine, um, that at least somebody within the IRGC chain of command didn't have knowledge um, and an idea that this was going to that this was going to happen. Whether it's authorized from Tehran directly at the highest levels, that I don't know, and I think we're going to have to wait and see. Um, but it would be unusual not to have had. Uh, any knowledge. Now, the last thing I'll mention here is, look, there is some indication that the U.S. obviously was surprised that its air defenses didn't go off. The U.S. air defenses in the area are quite good. You know, the, the public reporting seems to indicate that there may have been a U.S. drone flying back at the exact same time. And so the system wasn't activated, thinking that um, it was the U.S. drone and, and getting confused. Um, it's possible that you would have had the Shia militants make a decision thinking, oh, U.S. defenses will get it. We just want to throw it up. But that's an awfully risky behavior. And if that's true, then at minimum, what you're talking about is the type of unintended escalation that people in the Biden administration has been worried about for a long time now um, that could cause a broader regional war. If it's not true and they didn't even think about it and were simply trying to intentionally strike Tower 22, um, then it's simply a situation in which you're talking about behavior that they would have had to know was escalatory. Either way, um, we've certainly hit an escalatory um, inflection point different than a number of the other attacks that you referenced rightly um, over the last few months. I'm glad you brought up um, this notion of risk because, you know, and 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 you know, acknowledging what you said that we don't know how high up in Tehran authorization for this or the command order for this was was given, but but assuming there was some knowledge within, you know, the IRJC at an echelon that matters, then you know it it makes you think about the models that we use to kind of conceptualize proxy warfare, right? Proxies allow a degree of deniability. They limit risk. They, um, they disincentivize, um, uh, escalation compared to more direct, uh, actions. This just seems like terribly risky behavior, particularly given signals from Washington that harming U S service members would be a red line in the region. And, you know, I, I don't think we need to go down the road of, red lines and credibility in, in the region and, and things of that nature. But it just seems like it, there is a great deal of risk. Are we, you know, do, do we have the proper analytical frameworks to understand the precise ways that Iran is using its proxies and, and the purposes that it's using them for? No, I don't think we do. I mean, I think we have some historic data points that we can point to and say, how did it make a decision to um, 
apply its proxies one way or the other. Um, that's certainly true in Iraq as it's gone after U.S. forces on and off for a number of years now. I think it's certainly true in Syria. It's been true with Hezbollah. But but look, Hezbollah may be actually the best example here in some ways, because at the beginning of the war, right, we saw the U.S. move another aircraft carrier strike group into the Mediterranean that was very clearly aimed at trying to dissuade Hezbollah from entering the war in a fulsome manner. Um, that's not to minimize how they've entered the war and, and what's going on. You have at least 80,000 people displaced from northern Israel that have had to go south because of the threats from Hezbollah. You have Radwan special forces that still are on the border. That's become a real challenge. But you haven't seen it erupt into the type of war we saw in, say, 2006. And, and today, given Hezbollah's inventory, it'd be even more um, damaging, almost certainly. Part of the calculation has been, I think, from a lot of us who have looked at it on the outside, is that Hezbollah doesn't want to get involved, but Iran really doesn't want Hezbollah involved. That, that Hezbollah is kind of the pointy end of the spear for Iran. And if it expands all of its weapons inventory, it's built up now over the last almost 18 years. If it expands all of its capabilities for a major war with Israel, okay. But then actually it creates a situation in which there isn't a deterrent effect against Israel when it comes to Iran itself. Um, it's a real threat, uh, Hezbollah is, that's actually kept Israel kind of in this box. The Shia militant groups are not the same, right? There, there's a different view, I think, of how to use them. One, there's a number of different groups, right? They're, they're not all cohesive, and we do know that they fight within each other sometimes. And so even though they're responsive, I think the Iranians view the Shia militant groups as a much more tactical solution versus strategic one. It doesn't mean that they don't recognize the strategic influence they have in Iraq. I think they certainly do. Or strategic influence in Syria. Um, I think they certainly do. But if you look at even the weapons inventories that the, the Iraqi militants have and the Shia militants have in Syria, they're not close to, say, what Hezbollah has or even some of what the Houthis have. Um, and so I think it changes the dynamics slightly. It says that the Iranians are willing to be much more forward-leaning in, in using these groups. The question becomes, does it also mean that they're willing to take greater risks? And that, I think, is something that we're going to discover in, frankly, the coming months. Because there, there's got obviously a line for the Iranians that they're only willing to go so far as well, unless you believe, and I, I don't, that the Iranians actually want to be involved in a regional war. Um, I think this is about pushing to try to concentrate and solidify their influence in the region as much as possible for a post-Gaza conflict period. Um, and a win to Iran is that their proxies and their partners have not only survived, but have increased the level of threat and influence to deter Israel, to deter Western nations, to deter others from trying to, to undermine them.
the, the further out Iran's proxies and the more they're able to build themselves up, the bigger of a bubble of protection it creates for Iran itself to not have to be at risk of uh, being directly involved in the conflict. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come back to that question of kind of the end state surrounding Gaza and how various stakeholders in the region are, are seeking to position themselves in advance of, of whatever that end state is. Um, but first, I, I want to ask kind of a follow-up question in terms of how we think about Iran and, and its and its network of proxies within the region. I'm going to make an analogy that, and I, I hope you'll bear with me. In 2003, U.S.-led coalition went into Iraq. Um, this is an exaggeration, and it's a gross simplification, but it almost felt like, right? It's mainly Shia, 60% Shias, you know, 40% Sunnis, but the Sunnis are in power. There are some Kurds in the north maybe a couple pockets of Christians, right? We got it. Let's roll. And and again, that's a gross simplification, but we quickly realized that we didn't have a great handle on some of those, you know, sociocultural dynamics, political dynamics within Iraq. And so we did lots of things. You know, when I was in Iraq in 2008, we had cultural advisors, we had human terrain teams, which were as, you know, anthropologists, trained anthropology scholars who were there conducting this research. And, and we got a much firmer grasp on it, but it still felt always a little bit incomplete. It, it I sort of equated it to, um, you know, you can learn a foreign language and you can be proficient. You can even be fluent. But if you're not a native speaker, there's a degree of nuance that you'll you'll never fully be able to grasp. And so that meant that we were sometimes trying to solve the problems in, in a way that didn't quite reflect one or two of those nuances. And it undermined um, some of our some of our efforts. I, I wonder if a similar dynamic doesn't exist you know, from a U.S. kind of policy perspective, broadly speaking about the Middle East, we can have individuals who know a great deal about the region, but the policymaking process has a way of kind of blurring some of that or, or losing some of that nuance in the process when you go from that individual knowledge and knowledge that's housed within various areas of expertise within the U.S. government to the time when it comes to implementing policy. And we come back to, all right, we know what tools are in our toolkit, right? It's it's carrots and sticks. Um, it's Tomahawk missile launches. It's reprisal attacks that are very precise and very finely calibrated. Do we, do we necessarily understand the dynamics? I'm not asking if individuals do, because I've talked to many. I mean, you're one of them. You spent much of your career in the government looking at this region. You understand in a certain way. But when it comes to you know, deliberations that are ongoing right now, how do we respond to this attack in Jordan? Do they reflect a sufficient degree of nuance and understanding of those dynamics in the region to avoid potentially worse second and third order effects? Look, I think it's a really important question. I, I think the problem in terms of response that we're going to be talking about for the Biden administration is partially about do we understand not just the the dynamics at play in the region, but do we actually have a really good sense of not just the cultural, but the political and the leadership dynamics that's driving decision-making in places like Tehran? And the reality is, you know, every year, the director of national intelligence puts out um, an annual threat assessment um, and goes to testify on the Hill with the other, a number of the other uh, agency chiefs. <clears throat> and there's a number of hard targets, Russia, China, and Iran is always up there. I think it's a mistake 
to view Iran as somehow a monolith, despite the fact that it has a supreme leader. Um, everything I know tells me that there are debates within the political leadership, there are debates within the policy leadership. That's not to say that a supreme leader orders something that it's not done. I think it is. <clears throat> but I think it's a little more of a nuanced decision-making process than say you might have in a place like North Korea. And I think that's important when we think through um, the response to some of these things. So when the Trump administration, when the Trump administration made the decision to kill Qasem Soleimani, the former head of Quds Force, there was a lot of surprise on the U.S. side. And there's been kind of two divergent narratives that have emerged. One is they shot some rockets back at Al-Assad Air Base in, in Anbar, the U.S. base. A couple of people were injured, but it wasn't anything major. And that was the response. And what it showed is that they really are not willing to push back. There's a counter narrative that I don't think probably gets enough attention, which says <clears throat> they shot back at Al-Assad. You actually had over 100 injuries, including many with traumatic brain injuries. It may not be as clear as it was originally thought that they intentionally didn't kill anyone, that it may have actually been more luck and good fortune than it was actual planning. And you also had multiple other attempts probably foiled, and we know that the Iranians are incredibly patient in their reactions. All of which is to say, in a roundabout way to try to answer your question, I think that we actually do have some fairly good expertise and fairly good understanding um, of some of the cultural challenges. And I think we have done better and learned some lessons, especially from Iraq, and the need for a broader cross-section of expertise that includes folks like cultural anthropologists and includes cartographers, frankly, in a way that we never used to have them. I think that we sometimes overestimate our understanding of decision-making processes and of leadership intent. And at the end of the day, there's long been this debate in the international relations and, and political science realms, right? Do leaders matter or are they systems ultimately? I'm somebody that fundamentally believe that leadership intent actually matters far more than traditional systems, um, how systems work. Um, and so for me, I worry immensely about do we have enough insight into what it is that these individuals are actually trying to accomplish so that we can calibrate our response directly? Because if what the Iranians are trying to accomplish is to solidify a situation in which they're so dominant in the region and they're so overwhelming um, that nobody is not only willing but able to actually push back on them, then that's going to create a huge challenge for the future of not just U.S. political and, and military security or our allies. It's going to cause a huge challenge for the future of shipping, a huge challenge for international commerce and the number of choke points that the Iranians control directly or through proxies. But if the opposite is true, and maybe it's somewhere in the middle, but if the opposite is that they're just trying to test and push how far they can go, they don't actually intend to really 
keep pushing. They're not intending to keep conducting strikes on U.S. bases or U.S. personnel or U.S. assets over and over and over again. This was a first of a test balloon. And the U.S. miscalculates and takes uh, undertakes a strike that's so overwhelming, especially directly against Iran, say, which you've seen a number of people calling for. Well, then it creates this situation of, of uh, an escalatory spiral in which Iran is going to feel like it has no choice but to push back and to respond and to do so fairly hard itself. That's we never have perfect information either in the intelligence community, in the military, in the State Department. We don't. But trying to understand that decision making is really what I think is key and where the greatest challenge is going to be um, in how the president calculates this response, but also future responses, frankly. So I want to then turn back to, and maybe we'll kind of close out with this, um, you know, how this relates to Israel's campaign, ongoing campaign in Gaza, because as you mentioned, the Houthis emerged in the, in the, in the 1990s in Yemen, we have, uh, you know, Syria has been, you know, has, has been a pretty insecure place since the Arab spring, uh, and, and the popular uprising against Assad's rule in the ongoing or the civil war that, that ravaged that country for many years. ISIS seized Mosul in, in 2014, now 10 years ago, and there have been security, Iraq's security landscape has been changed ever since because of that. All of these things have been happening well before October 7th and the subsequent IDF campaign in Gaza. So two questions. Number one, is there a risk of looking at a region that already had a lot of violent activity and instability and things going on and linking everything too closely to Gaza and understanding it all as part of that um, or is, is that not a risk? Is this all, it, are all of these actors responding specifically to events that we're seeing unfold, uh, there right now? And then I guess two, you know, specific, specifically with respect to Iran and its, um, and its various proxies, partners, the organizations with which, uh, you know, that it, that it occasionally uses to, to suit its ends. I guess, what is, what is a, you know, a, a a strategic end state for them when the ground campaign comes to an end in Gaza and there's, you know, an effort to, to return to some, some form of normalcy, whatever that looks like. So look on, on the first question, I think, you know, in law, in U S law, you have something for injuries called right proximate cause and actual cause and, and actual causes, but for, um, the event occurring, the injury would not occur. Proximate cause is, is a little more challenging, right? It, it's about, um, you know, the event being sufficiently related is the term used that the courts say, well, that's enough to determine the injury. I, I kind of been thinking about that as a metaphor for the Gaza conflict and a lot of the external actors. Hamas, Israel, Hezbollah, there's certainly, you know, October 7th is the actual cause of the behavior that we're seeing. You're seeing, I think, a number of other actors take advantage of the situation. And so it's related, 
but it's really a proximate cause to it. So the Houthis, I think, are taking advantage of the situation in Gaza because they see that nobody else was filling the role uh, and that they could rally support. And in doing so, um, provide folks in the Arab world a different impression about who the Houthis are and what they can be. And we've seen this, right? It's been successful. They've said, oh, we're doing this for the people of, of Palestine, we're doing this for the people of Gaza, we're doing this because the Israelis are, are trying to um, undertake a war that's, that's killing and displacing and murdering. And we've seen, you know, in various Arab capitals, the Houthis gain tremendous support from this. I think some of the, you know, the Iraqi Shia militants, I think, are probably being responsive to the Iranians. But similar thing, it's easy to go out and tap into what is very real trauma and pain throughout the Arab world related to the current situation that's happening and say, we're going to use this and take this and co-opt it because it's good for our brand as well. I think that, you know, will work for the immediate. I think there's an open question a year from now, is the Arab world really going to be very supportive of the Houthis? Because in this moment in time, they were supportive of the Palestinians. I'm a little skeptical of that. There's been a lot of polling lately and a lot of people reacting to polls about how much U.S., um, how bad the U.S. image is right now in the Arab world and how much support has dropped. But when you look at the polling, the ironic thing is U.S. support in the Arab world was only running around 13, 14 percent. And now it's dropped to like 9 percent, 8 percent. The image was already quite bad. So I, I think there's, you know, sometimes a bit of the fog of war comes into the perceptions of these things. And that goes for whether it's the U.S. or it goes for some of the proxies and, and adversaries, Um of regional states, proxies of Iran as well. Uh, on Iran, for the end of the conflict specifically, I think Iran's end state and end goal is to have a situation in which they end up in a, frankly, better state than they started, to end up in a situation in which um, their proxy and partner groups, whether Iraqi Shia militants or Hamas or Hezbollah, is in a better place than when October 7th started. There seems to be pretty good sense that Iran wasn't aware that Hamas was going to launch this attack when they did. Uh, there's some debate, I think, in the public realm we've seen about whether or not Tehran was actually upset about it. But we are where we are now. And so I think for Iran, it's always about how it can create a dynamic that better supports its own regional goals in the end. And having all of its proxies, all of its partners intact, having uh, a situation in which um, Arab states are uh, required now to get more um for the Palestinians before normalization happens. The, the one thing Iran doesn't want is any normalization, and they certainly don't want a Palestinian state because it undermines their narrative. But the requirements for a Palestinian state to come now that Arab states, especially Saudi Arabia, have to support, I think Iran recognizes requirements are higher and therefore more unlikely to happen. And that's to Iran's benefit. The longer that states in the region are in conflict, 
um, the better off Iran is. And so they don't need a lot to have been successful here um, as long as Hezbollah is not destroyed at the end of it and as long as Iran itself um, remains secure from external factors, I think they'll view it as as having emerged relatively successful. Well, I think we will leave it there uh, for now. You know, given your given your background, because you've worked within the national security enterprise, the intelligence community on Middle East issues for so long, given your role at the Atlantic Council, you got a really, I think, nuanced and insightful perspective. Um, and so there are a lot of other topics unrelated to this in the region that I'd also like to to get your insights on. So we might have to have you back uh, again to to tackle some of those because it is a region where it seems quite regularly there are new things to be looking at and trying to understand. So I appreciate you taking some time to, to try to help our listeners kind of think through, uh, think through some of the things that we've talked about. Thanks so much for having me. Look forward to being back in the near future. Hey, thank you so much for listening to the MWI podcast. One last thing, if you aren't yet following MWI on social media, you can find us on Twitter slash X, Facebook, or LinkedIn. It is a great way to stay up to date on all of the new articles, podcast episodes, research, and more that we're publishing every day. Thanks again. Thanks again.